This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey friends, this is our last episode of the season, but Carolyn and I wanted to let y'all know that there is extra unladylike, all caps, to keep on keeping y'all company over on our Patreon. Yeah, I mean, we've got bonus episodes over there on Kristen finally watching Dirty Dancing, a mm-hmm. two-part Love is Blind recap, a deep dive on Flojo, and more, if you can even believe it. <laughs> we'll be adding new bonus episodes over on Patreon each week, especially as these quarantines continue. And we would so, so appreciate your support over there. And we think you'd have a lot of fun over at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. And don't forget, you can find our bonus pep talks album, which would probably come in handy these days, over on Stitcher Premium. All right, let's get to the episode. <laughs> It's kind of unprecedented that you would read 2,000 negative things written about yourself in a week. That's, that's an unusual situation that not a lot of people have been through, I don't think. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules and get canceled. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And that was Natalie Wynn. She's the trans creator and host of the popular YouTube channel ContraPoints. Her videos debunk dicey political and social topics like gender identity, wealth, fascism. And the whole point of them is to offer thorough but accessible counterarguments or contrapoints, if you will, to the white nationalism, toxic masculinity, and anti-feminism that really thrives online. Yeah, ContraPoints videos are great, and they're why I originally wanted to have Natalie on the show. Like, the first one I watched is called Gender Critical, and in 33 minutes, she just effortlessly explains and dismantles transphobic arguments, all while sporting elaborate looks, moody lighting, and endless wigs. My clothes, makeup, voice, none of this makes me a woman. No trans woman thinks that femininity and womanhood are the same. Rather, we're using a cultural language of feminine signifiers to prompt others to see us for what we are. Sometimes I get the impression that my cis girlfriends don't really understand why I'm presenting in such a meticulously feminine way. Like, they think I'm wearing ombre lips at 11am because I'm playing some kind of clout game. Which I am, but also, if one person calls me sir, that's gonna ruin my day. So I'm desperately throwing glitter spaghetti at the wall in hopes the light catches some glimmer of womanhood. To me, Caroline, Natalie's videos are basically like watching your coolest, smartest friend defend her dissertation at a cocktail party. Like, they're really packed with information and nuance, but without all the academic speak. Yeah, and Kristen, we hear from so many unladies asking for advice on how to deal with the toxic bros and alt-right uncles in their own lives, so I really thought she'd be the perfect person to come on the show and offer advice. 
But in the meantime, Natalie got canceled. Yeah, it happened after a string of online infractions, like associating with other canceled people and firing off some ill-advised Twitter threads. The internet mobs came for her so hard that Natalie had to take a months-long mental health break from YouTube and has actually left Twitter altogether. But the harassment wasn't from the folks you might expect to come for a transgender, feminist, progressive YouTuber. So today, uh, we're definitely going to hear Natalie's canceling story. But first, she's going to break down why she started her YouTube channel and her proven tactics for debunking toxic ideas. All to find out what happens when you get canceled by your own community. I've always kind of liked YouTube. Um, I like the chaos of it. I don't even mostly watch politics. I watch a lot of makeup videos. I watch cooking videos. I watch videos of like competitive eating. I just all kind, you know. It's just I, I like the kind of like the way that it's so DIY and the way that these personalities that would never make it, not not any chance of making it in conventional media, just get millions of followers on YouTube. Natalie has joked that she failed her way into YouTube stardom. After dabbling as a musician, dropping out of a philosophy PhD program, and attempting to make it as a fiction writer, Natalie pivoted to video. This was in 2015, soon after she'd moved to Baltimore. And the same year, the city's Black Lives Matter movement rose up in response to police killing Freddie Gray. And online, Gamergate trolling and harassment was in full swing. Watching that situation and the Black Lives Matter movement and also just the incredibly ignorant response from most people on the internet, that kind of sparked, I think, my early interest in trying to talk about these topics on YouTube, especially once I saw that a lot of the politics that was going on on YouTube was, like, ignorant at best and, like, sinister fascist propaganda at worst. (laughs) No thanks to the power of algorithms, the more videos Natalie watched on YouTube about things like feminism, racism, etc., the more crazy shit she saw, and the deeper she got into the radicalized rabbit holes of YouTube. My recommended videos uh, feed on YouTube was suddenly full of these videos with titles like Feminism is Cancer, Black Lives Matter is a racist terrorist organization. You know, um, like these are the talking points that were sort of growing on YouTube in 2015. I knew enough to know that was bad. (laughs) Natalie decided to launch her own YouTube channel, ContraPoints, as a nuanced and entertaining counter to all the right-wing propaganda she was seeing on the Internet— and as a way to understand why these movements were bubbling up in the first place. Her first video was on incels, a.k.a. involuntary celibates, and it's been watched more than three million times. In this video, I don't want to mock incels or lecture them or even sympathize with them. I just want to understand who they are and why they're like this. To start with, sometimes the best... Over 35 minutes, Natalie deconstructs incel misogyny step by step, grappling with their ideas and even offering some empathy. And that's the key to her videos and and a real part of her success. So in your videos, you confront a lot of toxic ideas around things like incels, for instance. So what is your goal and how do you approach debunking these arguments? While it is anthropological, I guess, in some sense, that is I'm making a video 
to inform like a general public about this unusual like online subculture. I'm also very aware that the people from that subculture are gonna watch the video. So I, I try to make a video that has like an escape hatch or like a life preserver, a rope thrown, whatever metaphor I want to use, that basically allows someone who's watching those videos as an incel to not feel like I'm simply just antagonizing them, but I'm also like at least making the effort to understand where they're coming from. But my natural inclination when I'm reading this stuff is to be like, oh, wow, this is like, these people are horrible, impossible to get along with. They're, they're incredibly misogynistic, but they're also like really, really lonely and unhappy. And I can try to make a video that doesn't just caricature them, but because uh, that, that's pointless to me. So I try to give people three dimensions when I'm describing them and when I'm describing these toxic online subcultures. Do you get the kinds of comments along the lines of like, oh, yeah, I mean, Natalie Wen's pretty liberal, but she's not like all those other liberals. Like, I feel like that's a common trope among like, I don't know, in like conservative comment culture. Oh, definitely. Like that's, I mean, not not like other liberals is definitely kind of. I guess I guess it's part of the brand. Like the one I hear the most actually is people say they don't feel judged by me. Um, they don't feel like so I got a comment recently from someone who said like I was the only like transgender person they could stand to watch um, because I didn't make cis feel like a dirty word. I don't know that I would claim that about myself, but I'm glad they feel that way because that is exactly what I sort of go for, I guess, when I make the videos. I mean, I noticed early on that if you're going to talk about, especially the social justice kinds of issues, people are so defensive about it. And if you're going to get through to them, you have to make a lot of rhetorical concessions that might seem totally unreasonable. Like, you just can't say the word transphobia most of the time. It just, it just, people hate it. People hate being accused of anything phobia. It just shuts their brains down. It just shuts their ears down. They stop listening to you. And same with like calling, calling people racist. You know, you can't, sexist, misogynist. There's a, certainly a time and a place for, for using these words. Um, but it's not when you're trying to persuade a general audience, in my opinion. It just causes people to shut down. I think that's such an interesting and really important point in terms of like making the rhetorical concessions. And it comes up a lot even just in terms of like, you know, questions we get of like, should I call myself a feminist? Will that be too alienating? I mean, just even as like basic as that, is it more valuable to make some rhetorical concessions if you are going to get through to a person versus using the kinds of words that will, to use a, a, another term, trigger, <laughs> trigger a lot of like hyper-conservative or like red pill types. Well, it's always, it's always a give and take. It's a question of, I mean, you, you lose something when you make the rhetorical concessions often. But for me, it's, it's about, I guess I try to sort of strategize when I'm writing a script, like how I can make rhetorical concessions without making ideological concessions um, to, of my own views. I think for me, like p part of why I don't feel like I'm, I'm totally conceding everything, I, I don't feel like I'm giving up that much, is that I kind of have a very sort of individualistic, humanistic um, approach to a lot of these topics where I am not sort of like describing like a sociologist, but I'm sort of engaging with it at the more human level. So I'm often just talking from my through my own perspective or my own experience. 
And that way, that makes me feel like I'm being true to my own voice and my own ideas, but also not alienating everyone with all this, like, heavy, you know, sociology talk. Her approach has paid off. Hundreds of people have reached out to Natalie privately or spoken publicly about how ContraPoints videos have basically dismantled their alt-right ideas. If you look at my, uh, like, the subreddit about ContraPoints, it used to be this trope where you would regularly see people posting, like, oh, I used to be alt-right, I used to be red-pilled, you know, that, like, I I heard from hundreds and hundreds of people who had sort of been drawn into those movements, drawn into that kind of content, and then found my content at least somewhat helpful in their path to getting out of it. One of these people is Caleb Kane, whose experience of getting radicalized by this endless stream of alt-right YouTube videos was profiled in the New York Times. He said two things pulled him out of it. The 2019 white nationalist terrorist attack in New Zealand and watching Natalie's ContraPoints videos. Since launching ContraPoints in 2016, a lot has changed for Natalie, too. When I first started this channel, like, I, I had not transitioned. I was presenting as male, question mark. I guess the persona that I had at the beginning, it was very much a persona that anticipated the harassment, anticipated the criticism. So for being a transvestite, for being, um, uh, you know, they, as they would say, they would perceive me as gay. So I, I kind of just leaned into this this idea of being a, this ultimate degenerate beta cock. <laughs> I've been called a faggot probably 12,000 times. <laughs> that that sort of stuff didn't actually b- bother me as much because I was so ready for it in a way. Um, in, a, in a way, it's gotten worse since I transitioned because I'm, so I'm sort of being more honest about myself online instead of like loading up this pre-satirized version of it. <laughs> and so I would say that, I mean, in, t- in terms of harassment, you know, Honestly, like, right-wing harassment is not really a problem in my life anymore. Like, sure, is on 4chan, but I, you know, just don't look at 4chan problems solved. But when harassment is coming from inside the house, suddenly the problem is you. When we come back, Natalie tells us how she got canceled. Don't go away. When I was like living as a, a gender-questioning man, I wasn't really considered part of any community. I wasn't representing anyone as a trans woman. I'm treated as a representative of a community that is very marginalized and that has very little representation. So that's, I think, that's the kind of essential context for, for why this happens. We're back with YouTuber Natalie Wynn. And the this she's referring to is getting canceled, or super fucking canceled, as she put it. Things started snowballing back in 2017. And for Natalie, the center of that snowball is her gender identity. In fact, Natalie's first in a string of cancellations came about a month after she transitioned. She was interviewed for New York Magazine by this guy who'd garnered a transphobic reputation, which Natalie says she wasn't fully aware of at the time. The author was Jesse Sinkle, a journalist who uh, has written a lot of articles about trans children, which 
I, I honestly don't agree with myself. I think that they don't help trans people. But he's kind of a, treated like a supervillain on trans Twitter because that tends to be how Twitter essentializes. It It makes, you know, if, some, if we disagree with someone, they're literally Satan, triple Hitler, you know? So that was my first canceling. So if you are who you hang out with and you hang out with a triple Hitler, it doesn't matter if it's just for an interview. Them's the rules of getting canceled. Then in late 2017, Natalie agreed to debate this conservative YouTuber and trans woman who'd done things like, you know, wear blackface and support alt-right positions. And similar to the canceling by association that happened after the magazine interview, leftist Twitter called her out. They basically saw Natalie's decision to debate this woman as legitimizing her ideas, even though Natalie's intention was to simply share a progressive point of view with a conservative audience. After that cancellation, things were relatively quiet for a couple of years. Until one day... Natalie fired off a hasty Twitter thread about how sometimes she just doesn't want a room full of cis women performatively stating their pronouns simply because she's there. She was talking about how, you know, it can make her feel like singled out and self-conscious, which fair. But a tweet storm slash yet another cancellation happened when folks interpreted that thread as Natalie criticizing the entire practice of stating your gender pronouns. After that, Natalie took a two-week break from Twitter. Then, a few months later, the big one hit. The straw that broke the cancel's back. So last October, Natalie published a 49-minute-long video called Opulence, dissecting why society is so obsessed with wealth and power. And everything might have been fine had it not been for 10 seconds of voiceover. Natalie cast trans activist and adult performer Buck Angel to read a John Waters quote. But... Angel comes with some baggage. He has a kind of freewheeling, uh, unrestrained social media presence. And he said a lot of things that people find insensitive towards non-binary people or just kind of like old school, like transsexual uh, takes on, on topics in general. But he's one of these people who trans Twitter has decided is like literally Satan out to destroy trans people, the bane of everything good. So because I used his voice in a 48-minute video for 10 seconds, people basically said, oh, you platformed Buck Angel, and that therefore I must endorse everything he's ever tweeted, and therefore by association, I also hate non-binary people, and also this kind of compounded snowballed with the controversy over the pronouns tweet, and it just exploded. Now, Natalie was used to getting harassed by anti-feminists and TERFs, which stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminists. But these cancellations felt different. They were coming from folks inside her own community. You know, when it comes from Nazis or TERFs or whatever, it's like, okay, well, obviously they hate me. Like, that's no, that's no mystery there, you know? And so it's easier to kind of write it off. But when it comes from other people, you know, representing themselves as transgender people are representing themselves as leftists, it's, it's, I think, much more painful to be told by, like, other people representing themselves as activists that you hate trans people. This kind of, like, the kind of stuff is sort of destroying your sort of moral sense of yourself. It actually is, it cuts deeper and it hurts more. And it just sort of leaves you at the end of the day paralyzed under the weight of this 
uh, you know, the fact that there's these hundreds of people who think that you're a horrible, horrible person, exactly that you're horrible to exactly the causes that you most believe in. So it's had a much more lasting and much more painful effect than any other kind of harassment has. But this kind of in-group harassment isn't new, and social media didn't invent it. During the heyday of second-wave feminism in the 70s, activist and writer Joe Freeman identified a very similar-sounding phenomenon she called trashing. It was basically a form of social exile within the women's movement, as Natalie puts it, and a way to keep women in line with the movement messaging. She says that it's psychologically harder on her than her having to be raised in a sexist society because, I guess there's a quotation where she says, you know, she never allowed anyone to judge her but herself. But because she needed feminism, she needed the women's movement, she sort of made herself vulnerable to them. And when they said she was worthless— she believed it. And, and that's, that's I think, very, exactly how this works, right? That's why it hurts more when it comes from your comrades, because you sort of grant this group of people a kind of moral authority because you trust them or, or because you need them or because, you know, you, you sort of need the solidarity of this movement to get by through through whatever the social issue you're struggling through, whatever, whether it's patriarchy, sexism, or or on, in my case, on, on transphobia. It also seems like there's an element of irredeemability to it, like once canceled, always canceled. Yeah, no forgiveness. It's one of the most sadistic elements of it, in my opinion, because I think that this is often really bad faith. Like, the goal of canceling is, is often not criticizing a particular thing a person did. It's rather building a case, stacking up evidence of a person's essential badness. So that's one reason for the no forgiveness thing, is that they need to build a case that over, t- you know, you, you're a bad person. And the way they do that is by collecting tweets from several years, usually, that, that sort of show what a horrible, horrible person you are. And that, that means that, you know, tweets that you may have clarified or tweets that you may have had a more nuanced version of later on or tweets that you may have straight up apologized for. Well, they don't care because that's not the point. The point is not whether you, you've learned. The point is to demonstrate to as many people as possible that you're morally irredeemable. In January of 2020, after a three-month-long hiatus, Natalie decided to do what she does best and make a YouTube video. She published a feature film-length ContraPoints video, her longest ever by far, addressing the whole ordeal. It's called Canceling. Okay, look, this video is about canceling, also known as cancel culture formerly known as call-out culture. And I know you kids know all about this, but before we dive in, I have to explain the basics to my fellow boomers. So listen up, oldies. And these fellow boomers are going to take a quick break. When we come back, Natalie reckons with the canceling she's called for in the past. Don't go away. We're back with chronically canceled YouTuber Natalie Wynn. So how has your, like, really multifaceted situation changed how you have viewed calling out versus cancellation versus criticism? 
Oh, it's definitely changed my behavior online. Like, I think that, I mean, there was a time I used to participate in these call-outs on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I can remember, you know, back in, as late as like early 2018, like, you know, some other YouTubers would say something that I thought was, you know, uh, bigoted, dangerous, whatever. And I would just go in on them. I would do a whole Twitter thread about it. But I actually learned from doing that, that I needed to stop doing that. I think it was, there was this, there was this case, it was this, it was a lesbian YouTuber who said some transphobic stuff. And I did a Twitter thread basically saying like, ah, oh, this YouTuber is a transphobe, like, like, look what she said. And, you know, what ended up happening is basically I riled up a hate mob. I got a bunch of people really angry over it. The YouTuber I was calling out got really defensive and lashed out at me. Uh, she learned nothing. She never improved. Uh, the people who saw the thread basically got angry and went and attacked her and went and harassed her. And I just felt so awful about it the next day. Like I knew that I had done nothing good and I had just basically increased the num amount of pain in the world for no reason. And that really made me think twice about, about doing that again because I, I, I realized that it's just not not the right way to approach that kind of situation. Is there is there any usefulness to kind of <laughs> old school public shaming and calling out? I'm trying to think of a case where I genuinely <laughs> think that public shaming is useful, and I'm kind of struggling to come up with something. Um, I mean, I think it, it there's cases where it doesn't really do any harm and it feels good. <laughs> so uh, there's certain people who are sort of just obstinately bad and those people like it can be cathartic i guess to yell at them on twitter but i don't really think it helps i don't have much faith in this i mean i think so okay here's i'm not sure this is exactly public shaming but i do think that like the kind of like me too type callouts that actually can in certain situations be the only type of justice to be had and i i think that you know weinstein for example like when Every other channel has failed when you have like a powerful sexual abuser and you can't really, you know, there's not really any way to get out that person through conventional channels. Social media shaming can be a way of getting back at the person or, or, or protecting other people or exposing a predator. So in cases like that, I think, um, again, the, the, the point with that, of course, is not to uh, change a person's mind. It's, it's not even necessarily to shame a person. It is to punish and to protect further victims. So as a kind of vigilante justice, it can work in certain situations. But I think that as a kind of communication, it's always, it's always bad. Does canceling have an effect on, like, our bigger picture offline culture? Well, I think that culturally we're so online that it's almost hard for me to, to 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 discuss offline culture as if as if that's something that exists totally in total separation i mean i think that it does have uh real cultural effects i think that you know especially if i i sort of generalize my personal experience like i find i become much more cautious i'm much afraid to have opinions i am you know very wary about what I what I say online, um, and I think that does affect discourse. If if people are kind of living with this fear of 
of cancellation. If 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 making a minor mistake has severe consequences socially, then I think that that is that is something that's going to change people's behavior, and I think it's going to ultimately lead to us to a sort of more cautious, more repressed, in some ways more conservative uh, society. Well, what is your advice then for navigating, you know, like wanting to express ourselves and, and call stuff out, but also to be, you know, good and healthy citizens and elevate the discourse rather than just like contributing to the dumpster fire? Well, I guess my first piece of advice, um, and this actually applies whether you're being canceled or whether you're calling someone out, is stop and think before posting. What is the function of my tweeting? What I'm about to tweet? What is this going to, what effect is this going to produce? What am I hoping to achieve here? You know, slowing down the pace or deliberately slowing down your own pace of posting on Twitter, like make sure that you're not reacting, make sure that you're not um, posting reflexively, but that you actually have taken a moment to consider not just how, what you think and how you feel, but what you're hoping to accomplish with a tweet. And I think that just to avoid posting in the heat of a moment already ten, is a huge, um, a huge help. And it tends to produce more thoughtful, considered content. Well, Natalie, uh, is there anything about your specific experience or about canceling uh, that we haven't maybe touched on that you want our listeners to know? I guess I would say as a kind of qualifying uh, warning that, you know, I know some people tend to listen to me talk about canceling or some people use my video about canceling as a way of like shutting down any criticism of anyone whatsoever. Uh, well, that's not what I'm saying. Like, obviously, we still need to be able to criticize people, especially politicians and especially people in power. Like, yes, it's totally fair to criticize those people and to stay uh, skeptical ab about people. I, I guess what I, what I I just want to emphasize is that you know make sure that you're constantly checking whether you are criticizing people in power or whether you are trashing and exiling and whether you're getting caught up in what I think is probably the kind of exuberance almost of attacking a person. Uh, I would say keep an eye on the motivations and keep an eye on the tone of the group that you're in. That's how you can distinguish between canceling and criticism. Because while it's important to, to be aware of canceling when it's happening and to see that it's not just criticism, that it's actually this terribly toxic thing, it's equally important to keep criticism alive and to notice and, and to not make sure that we're not just throwing out criticism along with canceling. Natalie, are Kristen and I going to be canceled because we're interviewing you? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We really wanted to talk to you. We'll, t we'll take it. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> okay, Caroline, um, I'm honestly a little, a little scared to ask this question, but the time has come. Listeners, what are your thoughts on canceling? Uh, have you ever been canceled? Are you wanting to cancel us right now? Have you ever canceled anyone else? Tell us your thoughts. You can email us at hello at unladylike.co, find us on social at unladylike media, or join our private Facebook group and jump into the thread for this episode. Visit unladylike.co to find this episode's sources and transcript. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly dose of desperately needed, actually good news. And hey, upgrade your work from home uniform with an unladylike sweatshirt. 
Pairs well with a blazer. Perfect for Zoom meetings. <laughs> <laughs> to watch Natalie Wynn's video on canceling and all of her others, just head over to her YouTube channel, ContraPoints. It is a treasure trove of content, and the videos are long enough that they will keep you occupied for... <laughs> you know, at least a decent portion of this quarantine. Nora Ritchie is the producer of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is the senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Sound design, mixing, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Insert Fraser theme song. Oh, baby, I hear the blues are calling to salads and scrambled eggs. Oh, my. Oh, baby, I'll see you all confused. <laughs> Stitcher.